Hello, and welcome to the show, Me, Myself, and TBI. I'm your host, Christina Brown Fisher. I am a journalist and writer. I am also a traumatic brain injury survivor. In 2014, I was diagnosed with a TBI following a motor vehicle wreck and spent a year in intensive neurorehabilitation. Today's guest knows a lot about brain injury and car wrecks. Anna Kuba Bowers is a race car driver. In fact, she represents a long line of race car drivers, dating back to her grandfather who helped pioneer the early days of American car racing in the 1930s. She's continued that legacy strapped into a 650 horsepower dirt warrior known as a sprint car. In 2018, she survived two wrecks on the track. One of those crashes would forever change the trajectory of her life. I first connected with Anna through Pink Concussions. It is an advocacy organization aimed at driving change for management and support of women and girls with brain injuries. This episode may be triggering for some listeners, so a warning. Traumatic brain injury is often described as an invisible wound. According to a study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, suicide is a top cause of death linked to traumatic brain injury. My conversation with Anna shines a bright light on one of the darkest moments many people with TBI sometimes face when she considered taking her own life. Please take a listen. I want to initially talk about Anna just your family history and connection to racing. And then from there, we can talk about how you came to it. I mean, I know you, your interest in it was at a very, very early age. Um, But I think it would just be really wonderful for the audience to kind of understand the Cuba legacy and impact on racing and, and, and your connection to that. Sure. Thank you very much for coming on Me, Myself, and TBI. I remember when I first heard you speak for Pink Concussions, I was, one, just initially blown away by the fact that, oh, there's a female race car driver. That's not something that you necessarily uh, see or hear uh, too often. And it was just really fascinating, first of all, to hear your recovery story, and I and you and I both know that recovery is it is not linear and it's almost sometimes it feels like it's forever. But it was really inspirational to hear your approach uh, to recovery following brain injury. But even more interesting was knowing about your own family legacy and connection to race car driving. So let's start there, because to talk about the Cuba family and Cuba racing, we have to go as far back as, what, the 1930s? Yep. Yep, that's correct. Okay. So let's start there. Sure. Um, and thank you for having me. I'm I'm really happy to be a part of this and just kind of talk about and build awareness just for concussions in general. But um, kind of looking back at our legacy, you know, the Cuba name, when it really started and got its footprints um, into racing was with my grandpa, um, Earl Cuba, back in Colorado. Uh, 83 years ago now, which is pretty incredible. Um, He raced midgets out there, you know, won a number of races, um, series, championships, things like that. Um, He actually raced up Pikes Peak, which is in Colorado, down near Colorado Springs. So if you ever get a chance to take a look at that, it's pretty crazy. Um, 
just the amount of bravery that back then, especially with the equipment and things of that nature, you know, it was a, a lot riskier sport even than it is today, which a lot of people, when they think of racing, they think the risks that are involved, the speeds that you're going um, and all of that. Um, and I think they think of NASCAR and Formula you know, Formula One racing. Yeah. So, and you and you mentioned midgets. Let's first talk about that too, because even that in and of itself is really interesting. The the, the midget vehicle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of people are like, they he raced midgets. That's pretty pretty funny. And when he got inducted into the midget uh, Hall of Fame this past year down in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when I said that's what I was going to do, people are like, he raced midgets. It was, it's kind of comical. But basically, what that means is an open wheel car, just like sprint car racing. So think of stock car, NASCAR closed wheel, meaning there's fenders on those vehicles and those race cars versus open wheel really opens up the the risks um, on, you know, your close to close wheel to wheel action. There's nothing really stopping from a car jumping over a tire, you know, and going into flips. So that's why a lot of the excitement comes with both midget racing and sprint car racing. Um, and when you look back at, you know, the early years of it, the type of equipment you had, you really just had a lap belt. So when, um, when my grandpa started racing, it was just simply, you know, the love of the sport and you knew the risks and there was people, you know, at any given time were not making it home after the race. So it was definitely a passion that was instilled um, in the family really early through what he was doing. He was also a cattle rancher, um, but racing was always kind of the center point of his life and center point of his love outside of my grandma and, you know, my my uncle and aunt and my dad. What kind of early memories do you have with your grandfather and and these midgets, these these wonderfully fast and dangerous vehicles? He actually passed away when I was six months old, unfortunately. So it was kind of one of those things where I never really got to know him, but got to know him through my father and through my aunt and uncle um, and the legacies that they've built and paved the way in racing. So let's talk about that. We're obviously talking about just your family's impact and legacy on racing. You talked about your grandfather, late 1930s, doing midget car racing. But it was really your father that had the most profound impact and and really where you got your introduction to racing. Yeah, so my dad has been racing. You know, he was in the sport for, you know, 30-plus years, just himself racing, competing at both midget and then in sprint car um, in his career, as well as, you know, him and my uncle kind of racing side by side throughout the 90s and the 2000s. Um, And, you know, my goal was always to someday race against him. It just, time kind of came upon us and it didn't happen in time. But, you know, my brother was also in the mix. So at any point in time, you know, there was three Kubas racing and it was pretty incredible um, as a child. And as a kid, you know, growing up teenager, watching three of your family members, you know, race each other and at times, you know, potentially take each other out, which which carried into even future races. Ooh, with... I bet Thanksgiving at your family's house must have been interesting. <laughs> there there probably was some very fun. interesting, yeah, very interesting times. But it was actually crazy, um, you know, when there was four of us. Because at one time, you know, I started racing and my cousin, which is my uncle's son, Jake, um, he was racing as well as my brother, Joseph, and my uncle, Jimmy. So there was four of us out there for probably two years solidly um, at every race, which when you, when you think about a, a field of cars, that was a, a good chunk of it. So, um, you know, most times we have 20 to 25 cars on the track and there, four of them are your family oh members. Gosh. It gets a little bit interesting. 
So yeah, <laughs> some interesting family family dynamic dinners and, and and holidays. It was truly a family dedicated situation because you know it was all hands on deck when people were there, um, and just where it's really came. You know, when I think about women too in racing and myself, you know, during the early years women weren't allowed in the pits. So, wow. you know, my aunt who's now been working in IndyCar, NASCAR, all of those things for so many years was never even allowed to be down in it, in the, you know, in the thick of things. And now, you know, that's what she's lived her and based her entire life on. So it's pretty incredible to think, you know, where things have came just from then and now, not only from just the car technology, but also just the human aspect of it, right? So the fact that I'm racing and, you know, my kids can race and all of those things is just pretty remarkable to see kind of where things have came from. So, you know, kind of going back to your point is, yeah, it may have not felt like I was, you know, I never got to meet him, but it always felt like he was a presence in me. And what's, what's probably the coolest really memory, and I would say my tie to him is that when he passed away, we started doing a memorial race for uh, his legacy, him and then my grandma when she passed away, just because she had been involved in it, you know, the entire duration of her 70 years of life. Um, but on the 25th and final memorial race that we had for them, um, I actually won it. And that was my first win in a sprint car, which... It was just one of those surreal moments that, you know, I really felt he was there. And even though I never got to meet him, he he was with me in that car. How old were you when you won that race? Oh, good question. Um, I was about 24 years old when I won that. And you had started in the sprint car around what time? So I started kind of, I would say the first time I ever got in a sprint car was age 18, but that year I was still playing collegiate soccer. So I really did not, it was more just, you know, when I'm done, is this something that I still have a passion for that I want to continue pursuing? And it was certainly something that I knew that I was going to come back to. Um, a little bit hard to do with a division one, you know, soccer plan ahead of you, but I really started full, full circle in a sprint car in 20 or when I was about 20. Um, so it was about a few years after that, which just shows the different, you know, the difficulty and the learning curve that goes with, you know, sprint car racing and the speeds there. I'm glad you brought up your, your collegiate soccer career, because I read that at one point when you were younger, you said that the only two things that you possibly wanted to do uh, when you grew up uh, was either to be a professional soccer player or a professional race car driver. And so let's let's talk about your soccer career because I understand that um, when it comes to your brain injury history, uh, you not only faced it on the racetrack, but you also uh, dealt with it because of your involvement in soccer. So let, let's talk about that that first and, and how you came uh, to love that game as well and, and what happened there on the field. Yeah, so, you know, soccer was something that I always had a passion for, just being on the field, the camaraderie of being on a team, the leadership aspect, which is now carried over into my life, you know, now in my career. But it had been something that I always just really enjoyed doing from a very early age. I think I started playing soccer, you know, kicking the ball around at age, you know, year and a half, two years, and then actually started playing um, at three. And it just was something I knew I had a drive for between that and racing, that that was what was my life was going to be in one of those two ways. But throughout my career, you know, in soccer, just the ability to be with people and learn and 
um, kind of overcome things together was a big thing for me. And that was really where some of my, you know, larger hits from as far as concussions came from. Um, you know, I remember vaguely one, one in particular, I took a header, you know, from midfield and all of a sudden I was off the field and I don't remember quite being off the field, but what I was told later on is that I was just, you know, they found me wandering on the other side. The ball was way on the far side and I was, mm. you know, on the opposite side of the field. So that's when they needed to pull me off. And I was trying to take a drink of water and I poured it down, you know, my shirt and it was just, you were trying to drink water. You missed your mouth and instead it went down your shirt. Yeah. And in my mind, it was right there. So it was one of those things where that was kind of probably the first real big one I had. Um, and, I, I didn't realize then what it quite meant, you know, concussions, even when I started out the, just the knowledge of what it is, especially in youth sports was nowhere what it is now. So, um, you know, I had thought I could go back out there. I wasn't understanding what was going on. Did the so, coaches think that you could go back out there too? Oh, no, they, they didn't put me back in after that. So they know. didn't put you back in. So there was at least awareness that you needed to sit out for a little bit. Do you remember yeah. how long you set out? Was it days, weeks? What did that recovery look like? Um, no, from there, it was probably not very long. Again, like, if you've come to know me, you come to know that I don't really like being slowed down very much. So it was one of those things mm -hmm. where once I the kind of the headache went away, I went right back at it. Um, but I do recall a few different times where there was some significant hits, whether it was a head to head contact or things like that, that just kept progressing. Um, so when people ask me, you know, how many concussions have you really had? I, I don't really know that answer. Um, there was at a point where I ended up getting one and went into the doctor. I think this was probably when I was about um, 18 or nine. Yeah, no, maybe 17. Um, and they were like, how many concussions have you had? And I said, I, I'm not really sure. I know I've had a few. And they, at that point already, there was talk about, well, this might not be something you can continue doing. You, you might not be able to play sports. And so and I, just even the thought of that to fathom it, and even from like, you no, know, from just society, like that wasn't a thing. You weren't going to mm -hmm. quit your career at such a young age because you had your bell rung. Um, did that make you, did that make you want to um, think twice about being forthright about what you were feeling? Yes. So did it, it did. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so a lot of times, anytime that would have happened, you know, again, it would, it started to be where I really felt like where I started keeping things in when I started feeling them. Um, and when I had kind of emerged where I was playing soccer collegiately and racing, that was certainly when I didn't want one impacting the other. So there was a lot of just kind of sucking up and dealing with it and yeah. not wanting anybody else to know. Um, one, because I didn't want to jeopardize the race team and then I didn't want to jeopardize the soccer team and the people that relied on me. It's interesting that you said that you didn't want to jeopardize the teams. Did you ever think that you was there ever an awareness that you were jeopardizing your health? It seemed it sounds like you're saying the loyalty was greater to the teams and there was almost maybe a lack of awareness of what it was doing to you personally, health-wise. Yeah, in my mind I never really had considered really what it was doing to me health-wise because I I didn't have the knowledge that I do even, you know, after a lot of my accidents. I I didn't realize what long-term Right. These concussions would do to me. So um, I thought it was always one of those things like anything else, you know, when you have a banged up knee or a sprained ankle, you know, you can tough through it, which head injuries are really not not that way at all. Yeah. 
And so you're playing soccer. At what point does the shift occur where you recognize, okay, the career is not in soccer, but there's a real chance, a real opportunity in race car driving? Yeah, so when I finished um, kind of my soccer career, that's really when I dove into the racing career, um, meaning that I was done with, you know, finishing up college, that that period of my life was over. Um, it was not something I was going to pursue further, but racing was, and it was something that I knew that I could make an impact on just from being a female and a male dominated sport. It was I felt like there, that was my calling. Um, my calling was to set, you know, the standard to set apart, you know, what, what women had been in racing. And now there's been a lot more, but there's not been a lot in sprint cars specifically just because of the, the volatility of the flips of the accidents and the risks that are involved. Um, typically women have not been heavily in that sport particularly. I'm just really curious to know where you think that came from, that resolve, right, that you were the one to make a difference and potentially kind of pave the way for, for other women who, who might want to consider sprint car racing. It sounds like you were undaunted by the fact that you were entering this heavily male-dominated sport. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think for me, growing up even, um, some of my closest friends had always been males and I kind of always challenged myself to try to be as good or better than them and not be seen as different just in general. Now, knowing physically women and men are very different and we are good and bad at certain things for a reason, but in racing, just wanting to show women that you can overcome what the society norm is. You can um, pave the way, you can blaze the trail, you can do things that maybe aren't necessarily socially normal and still make an impact. And the the way it really started to hit me was just the little girls that would be coming up and just the awe that you see them in when they see that it's a female in there. Um, the excitement and just, I can't even describe it, but really the it was like they had seen almost a celebrity, not that I wanted to be a celebrity, but almost like it was like seeing something that they had never seen before. And when I a lot of my paint schemes, there'd be people that would be saying, you need to have, you know, pink, you need to have purple, you need to be identifying yourself as a woman. And I said, myself is identifying that this is my identity. So if I have a blue car, that that doesn't matter that you don't have to um, dress yourself up, you don't have to pretend to be somebody else, you can be who you are. And it does not matter. Um, so I never wanted to be seen as different. I just wanted to be given a chance. I just wanted to be treated like everybody else out there and not held to a different standard. And so for me, it was very important that even in the way I designed cars or the way that I looked, it was for that. So um, not saying that I was the only person to ever do it, but it was just the way that I knew with some of my background, where I had been being in sports and being in a lot of different things that I could make an impact um, to people around me. What did you find the response to be like among your peers? Was it any more challenging, for example, to get sponsorship because you're a woman? Yeah, in some ways, probably. But in a lot of ways, too, others, like especially competitors, the people around you are like, well, you're only doing that or you're, you're only getting this because you're a female, because, you know, somebody wants something from you. Mm. So it was kind of actually the opposite. Um, not that I got a lot of sponsorship because of, you know, because or because I wasn't a female. Um but mostly it was 
that you're getting these special treatments or you have this because you're a female. Um, I see. So that was a little bit frustrating um, in a lot of ways. So you're constantly having to prove yourself on a number of different levels, basically. Did you find yourself, only because you brought up the fact that once you started being questioned about your concussion history with regards to soccer, you tended to not let people know to Mm -hmm. what degree you were um, dealing with symptoms or issues still connected with it. Was that also the same in in the racing community in that there, I guess you would have to work even doubly hard to show that you're you're unwavered or unmoored by Mm -hmm. the physicality of the sport? I guess for me, it wasn't something that you really had to show the physicality difference when you're out there racing and when the car is set up right and you're, you're in a good position to drive mentally. Most of the time, it really is not that difficult and it's not that difficult to show, you know, your skills. If you're faster than somebody, you're going to get around them. But the bigger thing was racing and how people race me a little bit differently. They would assume that, you know, potentially I would back down versus Mm. trying to show them, you know, the other thing or showing them the opposite of that. So when you say, on the racetrack, they're, maybe they're making an assumption that because you're a female driver that, that they can maneuver or move around you in a way that perhaps they wouldn't try with a man. Can you explain what that would look like? What would they try to do with you that you think maybe they weren't going to do if it was a male driver? Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I guess probably one of the reasons, you know, when you get to the end of the straightaway, if you're not already showing that you're kind of in that line, um, I'd be, they would be doing it way further down the road. So meaning like we would be um, going into a corner and they would try to basically cut me up. Think about like driving down the road, right? Um, Somebody's driving and they cut you off. It's similar to that where they would basically push the limits when they should not be there in that position, which can happen, you know, not just them to me, but it happens in general on open wheel. But it was one of those things I noticed it very early on because they knew that maybe I didn't have the same amount of bravery that they might have had. So they kind of would just slide me. They call it slide jobs, but they would slide me a lot more in the beginning, knowing that I'd probably break before them. Or if we were going like side by side, they would try to take the line away and know that I would move away versus I had to show them I was not going to move and I was not afraid if this ended in an accident. I see. Okay. Explain to me slide me again. I love the jargon. I want to hear what does slide me mean? Yeah. So there's called fly job. So a lot of times when you're going, fly job. Okay. yeah, you're coming into the corner um, and you set somebody up, you basically going into the corner, you dive underneath them and kind of float up. So you're taking their line away. Um, you'll see it a lot. If you watch any sort of sprint car racing, it's actually what makes it probably one of the most unique uh, sports out there. And I feel like sprint car racing is just so much more intimate. I, I just, you know, even if you're a fan in the stands, there's a good chance you're going to leave covered in dirt. I mean, there's just, there's no chance of you not having some sort of um, interaction, it, it feels like, uh, just because of the nature of the course. So talk a little bit about the course and kind of how it differentiates from what people might readily assume when they think race car. Yeah, it's actually funny. Whenever I am telling somebody that they're coming for the track for the first time, I said, make sure you don't wear anything nice or anything white because you are going to get blasted with some dirt. Um, Yeah, there's really nothing much like it when, especially when, so the track over time changes. When you start out, you know, in the early part of the night, a lot of the time it, it all comes down to moisture, conditions of whether it's humid out, if there's dryness, wind, all that plays a factor in how the tracks are, and plus the surface, what it's made out of, whether it's made out of clay 
or hybrid material, you know, of dirt, like everybody just assumes it's dirt. Well, there's a lot of things that go into that, um, that change the course of the surface over time and over the evening. So early on in the evening, a lot of times there's a lot more moisture in it because they prep the track, it's ready to go. So the terminology called hammer down, meaning that you really aren't lifting, you're the pedals all the way down and you aren't using any brake. There's just a lot of traction. Um, and as the as the night progresses, that starts to what they call blow off, meaning that it starts to get drier, it starts to get slickier, it starts to get more tactical, a little more difficult. You're using brake, you're using the throttle, you're using a lot more um, mental thoughts when you're driving. You can't just mm -hmm. you know go into the corner and everything sticks. So you're thinking about things a lot more, and you're using a lot of setup. A lot of people don't realize how much truly goes into just getting on the track. So making sure your shocks and your chassis set up and uh, your wheel spacing, your stagger, there's a lot of things that really happen um, and that you're watching as you're seeing the track change and what you're feeling when you are out there. So um, when you are at a, a sprint car race, you know, you're out there and you're just thinking these drivers, they're just out there and, and they, they've, they're not really thinking about anything when really there was a lot that went into it before they even get on the track. And then it's a lot of it is reactive and instinctive um, moves when you are in a sprint car. Cause there's not that much time. Um, you're, you're turning really fast laps. You're when you think about NASCAR and I've used this as an analogy before NASCAR are, you know, anywhere from one to two mile tracks and you're turning anywhere from, you know, one to two minute laps, depending on again, the speeds and the, what the track configuration is, but sprint car racing on most of the tracks we race on are, you know, three eighths mile. And so you're turning anywhere from 12 to 11 to 15 second laps. So you're going very fast and there's a lot of things that are happening at one time. When did you suffer your first head injury concussion connected to racing? So my very first one was in 2018. Um, so that was really where my journey, I would say truly on um, concussion, post-concussion, very strong, you know, symptoms that lingered for a long period of time started in that year. What happened? So um, it was kind of a course of two, there was two back-to-back -back wrecks, meaning back-to-back. -back. I had one in April and then this one, there was one in July. Um, the one in April. So April 2018. Yep. April 2018. There's there's a wreck. Let's talk about that, and then let's talk about the one in the summer. Sure. Um, so the one in two the April of 2018. Um, I was racing in a what they call a last chance race. So I had experienced just somebody took out my front end, meaning that I I didn't I wasn't able to finish the qualifying race because I got in an accident. Not not anything bad. Just. A minor, um, but it was enough to not allow me to finish that race. So I was in what they call last chance, the B main, um, trying to get into the main event and was passing and setting up a car for one of the final transfer spots when they um, lost their front wheel and I had nowhere to go. So I ended up trying to avoid them spinning out and was kind of just sitting there, you know, in limbo when a car that had been a couple laps down um, came, didn't see me and T-boned me right into my driver's side where it sent me, you know, barrel rolling down the back stretch of the track. So um, I don't, I don't feel like I really got a concussion from that point. I didn't get knocked out. I didn't really have any sustaining injuries, you know, besides probably some whiplash knowing that, you know, you got hit from the side and you started flipping. But I think that was really where my, you know, 
my potential injury started. Um, you did not lose consciousness? Nope, not in that one. And do you remember feeling anything in the hours or days following that felt off to you at the time? Yeah, for me, it was really just soreness. Um, you know, my neck was extremely sore, and that's where I think a lot of my neck injuries have came from um, outside of the one that happened later in the year. But it was one of those feelings where you're just kind of sitting there and you're like a duck, you know, duck in the water. When you get hit, you're tensed up, you know, you're just hoping everybody made it by you. And for me, it was everybody had. I didn't know there was anybody left. So then all of a sudden, you know, you have that fear and they're they're not slowing down. So hitting you at, you know, 80, 90 miles an hour, direct hit, you're going to probably have some residual from that without even really realizing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's April 2018. Um, how soon after that do you get back into the vehicle? Uh, one week later. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah, so the next week, actually, we had a really great night going. Um, I ended up, you know, winning by almost a half of a lap in a in a qualifying or qualifying race. And then my motor blew. So it blew up. Um, a lot of times after wrecks. Blew up? Things. Did you say blew up as an on fire? Uh, like blow up. Like blew up. Like you got to think like it just stopped working. Oh, my gosh. Um, okay. You know, it had a valve that broke loose. and I'm clutching know. my pearls over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh <laughs> The terminology is so funny yeah. because, you know, we speak it all the time. And yeah. it, it, it's like anything else. You kind of get in your your knowledge of it. Right, many right. But a week later, college. so, I mean, you, you've just been T-boned. A, a car hits you going 80 miles an hour, and you're like, okay, I'm back in the car. <laughs> all right, just another day at work. <laughs> Got to get it fixed up, and we'll get back out okay, there. Okay, so you're driving again. Yep, we're back in the car. Like, nothing happened. Right. It's all good. Um yeah, and that's, I mean, there's, it's my, probably mind-blowing to a lot of people, but you'll see, especially like even at the highest level, sprint car racing, I mean, somebody will flip out of the park or, or take a really bad hit, and they have a spare car, they roll it out, they, you know, they get it already, and they get back in the, they get back in the race that, that day. Wow. Like, it's yeah. just, it's the mentality of what the sport is, mm -hmm. is you don't sit out. You know, if you have the means, you're going to race. I mean, there's just no two ends about it. I mean, it's probably the same in any other sport, right? You know, unless unless you're, you know, incapacitated, you can't do anything, you're, you're yeah. probably going to get back out there. Um, yeah, and you don't want your head getting in the way, you know, talking you out of it either. And one yeah. of the best ways to do that is to get back in it as, as quickly as, as possible. When you did get back in a week later, did you notice anything that felt a little unsettling? at all uh no outside of like you know with the how tight you are in the car and just where your shoulder mm -hmm. belts sit um i mean i had bruises everywhere so that part was probably the most unsettling but being back you know in it i knew the sooner i got back you know the, the expression back on the horse as soon as i got back in the car the better because you it is a very much of a mental right. sport that you the longer you wait the worse it's going to be and so then what happens? You're 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 back in training, you're back racing, then what? Yep. So we were back racing. It was actually again probably the strongest season we had been having for quite some time. Um fast forward into July, the end of July, um there's this pretty big race that they have at our local track. So we were out there um and it was one of those where I'm starting third or fourth um on the event and it was just a weird and I talk about this a lot um, where 
I have these just weird feelings. Like I, when I, I said my, my grandpa was with me when I was racing, when I was out there, you know, we, there's no, there's no transmission. So everything is direct drive. So you have push start. So somebody in a four wheeler or a truck, they push you um, to get it rolling, to get it in gear, to get it to fire the car to start. Can you explain that? Um, I, I appreciate you saying that. Can you just explain that one more time? Because that, that is a, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a very important distinction in terms of how these vehicles get started. Can you mm-hmm. just explain that one more time, please, in terms of how you get the vehicles going? Yeah, so most cars, you know, they have a transmission and a starter, so they allow you to start. Sprint cars do not just because of the weight that goes into that. These are very lightweight, high horsepower machines. Um, so when I say we need their their push start vehicles, um, you basically get kind of pushed out um, either by a truck or by um, four-wheeler or whatever onto the track. And then from there, they start us all at the same time. So by starting us all, they have, you know, push vehicles, again, either truck or four-wheeler that push you to start once the car is in gear. So basically, um, it's almost like a mechanism similar to what a starter and or, you know, transmission would be where you would start it that way. But these don't have that. So it's it's a direct drive. And so even at this stage, which is obviously very routine, I mean, this is how you get on the track, even at this stage in the race, you're feeling what at this point? Yeah, so it was one of those, um, you know, kind of events where I I just had this feeling either it was going to be checkers or it was going to be, you know, I was going to be hauled up on a record, meaning I, I just had this feeling it was going to be an eventful race just in my soul, whether I, I didn't know it at the time really what that meant, that it was going to change the course of my life. Um that drastically but um it was towards the coming up on the second to last lap and i was passing you know right racing right for second place we could see the third place or first place guy as well um and we were racing and it was going down the back stretch which is not the front stretch is where the flag stand is but the back stretch heading into the turn um when i hit the side wall just with my tire which has happened before you know sometimes that can happen and you know you keep racing hopefully it turns you don't really think of anything of it. You just, you're pushing the limits. You're trying to pass the car. Um, so went into the turn after that and the car wouldn't turn. So I went straight into the wall, ended up, you know, rolling a couple times within the air and w- was headed towards the ground invertedly, meaning that my whole chest, my whole body was basically dangling kind of in the air. I mean, yes, you have harnesses on you, but you're, you're upside down, you're upside down heading into the to the ground and it was an abrupt stop that hit. and so you're you you've hit the wall at what uh how many miles per hour approximately um probably by that time because it was at the end of the straightaway probably 120 ish so you're hitting a wall at, a, at 120 miles per hour mm-hmm. you flip you're rolling in the air and you're upside down yep okay and then Coming to the ground, you know, basically nose down, if you think the front of a race car, nose down and to an abrupt stop landing on, you know, on t- on my head. Um, not really on my head, but on the top side of the race car. So from there, you know, again, I got out of the car very quickly. I had thought, you know, I was on fire. There was oil, very hot oil leaking from the motor because you're running at such high temperatures. So I quickly was trying to get out of the car. I do remember an ambulance coming up and people, you know, asking if I'm okay. And all I was trying to think about was I need to get out of the car. I thought I was on fire. So try to get out of the car as quickly as I could, got out of the car, um, was seen by first responders, went into the ambulance just for protocol. I was like, my knee hurts a little bit. They're like, is anything else wrong? And I was like, nope, I, I think I'm good. Um, 
didn't really disclose again that I hadn't been knocked unconscious for a moment in time. So immediately you're already withholding information. Okay, so this is less than five minutes after this car wreck. Yeah. And you're withholding the fact that you lost consciousness. Because in my mind, I was like, well, did I really, you know, you start second guessing it, right? Yeah. You're, you're trying oh, to, again, bet. make sure that you have your answers in a row. Like what exactly just happened? You're, you, the adrenaline is still pumping, you know, so fast that you don't really know and can't really assess what kind of injuries you might have had or what might have actually happened. I mean, it all happens in such fast time that most of the time, unless it's like really evident that something major is going on you're you, you don't really know until that all kind of calms down and wears down which is exactly what happened in my case when later that evening um being at the racetrack there was a lot of um my my uncle and my cousin still race so i stayed there we were we were watching the rest of the event and all of a sudden everything started spinning and i started throwing up wasn't able to control a lot of things and it was just the pain finally kind of set in on really that I said, this might be really bad. I don't know what's going on. Because now you're vomiting. Um, now your vision and balance is off. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And yep. um, you're losing control of some bodily functions. Um, mm -hmm. So at this point, because you, you don't go to the hospital, you're just, you're just checked out on site at the ambulance, and no yep. one takes you to the hospital. So this is now a few hours later. You're still at the track. When this happens, do you go to the hospital now? No, I mean, with histories of concussions, a lot of people will say, you know, you will vomit and things like that will happen. So kind of was one of those things where I was monitored overnight. I was with a large group of my family anyways. So I didn't want to, again, call too much attention to it. I didn't think it was going to be that horrific until a few days. It was about a Monday after when I was like, okay, I'm going to go into the clinic. I, I finally let my family know. I think I need to be looked at. Something is not right. I couldn't look at my screens at work. I could not, I mean, the pain was just getting worse and worse, was feeling way more nauseous. And I knew I at least needed to get checked out. Um, I think my biggest frustration was, is I, in my mind, I was like, they're not going to be, there's nothing wrong with me. They're not going to be able to find it. Um, and little did I know that there was a lot more that is in the unseen eye that could be wrong with you that maybe is not showing up on certain scans. So I did go to the hospital at that point in time after they referred me from the clinic um, and did get CT scans and referrals to neurologists from there to have follow-ups. Um, and that's kind of where, I guess, the road to recovery began. Um, what did the imaging being, reveal? Um, just that there was some bulging disc and, you know, my C3 to or C2 to C6, um, but nothing that was showing, you know, a CT scans don't really show a lot within your brain. They just really show that if there's not structurally something wrong or a brain bleed or things of that nature, not much that they can do besides refer you on um, to a neurologist for further investigation. How soon do you see a neurologist after that? And what are the symptoms you're experiencing in, in between the, the wreck and when you're when you're finally seen by a specialist? Yeah, so it did not it didn't get much better. I was seen actually a couple of days. Luckily I was able to get in rather quickly, which is not always the case, but was seen by a neurologist near, you know, our hometown in Minnesota. Um and right away it was what sort of medications can we get you on to control the pain and control the symptoms. Um, not really much on what we're going to do to recover you, but what are we going to do to at least make you function again? So that was, I guess, the real initial start was, yeah, I mean, I understood just wanting to get better, but I didn't really realize that there was so much more therapy that I would be needed 
um, in the early stages of my recovery, which a lot of people, you know, don't really realize that a lot of concussions can just be treated with some medication, but it doesn't really solve the problem long-term. You know, you're going to be dealing with it down the road. And I think that's some of the awareness, even just with some of the things I've been through on what I've liked to share and what I have shared with people that have gone through it. What did they say after you get this, I guess, what medication protocol? What next? Yep. So we did an MR. So at that point, you know, it was like, well, we'll get some occipital nerve blocks. So that's when that really started. Um, I, I didn't really understand what an occipital nerve block was, but they, with the area that I hit and the way my neck had snapped down, um, I had, I had a neck restraint. I had all the equipment that I thought I needed. Had I known there was probably a little more flexibility that maybe the neck restraint saved my life, saved me from potentially breaking my neck or, you know, breaking my back. It also had way too much, you know, movement where I still had enough snap down, um, on my neck to injure it that way. So the treatment from there was occipital nerve box, physical therapy. And then just for me, it was just, I needed to start strengthening again. Um, if anybody who doesn't know what occipital nerve blocks are, they can pretty much block any sort of situation, any sort of pain that you might be feeling. It's a nerve blocker, right? But mm-hmm. how many of those would you need? And, and they typically only last for a certain amount of time. Yeah, so my first, um, my very first ner- occipital nerve block, they did about 20 to 25 shots between my head all the way down through my neck and traps. Um, and it lasted about a month and a half to two months. Then I'd be back, you know, I'd be having follow-ups and I'm like, it, I'm not doing any better. Right. What's next? And they're like, well, let's just do some more nerve blocks. Yeah, I had that as well. It only lasts, yeah, I mean, it's great when it's working, but, you know, when it's not working, it's not, not great. So you're, you're, getting, you're getting more than a dozen yeah. of these shots. And so you're getting pain relief for about two months? Pretty much, yep. But then what else is going on beyond the physical pain? What else are you dealing with? Yeah. Um, for me, a lot of it was just the, um, depressive thoughts, the very sadness of just not really being able to control emotions. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't horrible, but it was certainly something that it was constant when you're in pain all the time. Um, it weighs on you. Um, it weighs on you a lot. And when you're not able to do the things you once were able to do, it's also difficult. So from a work standpoint, you know, managing people, managing a team, managing, you know, multiple things with a lot of multitasking was a, was tough and not wanting to um, miss anything or not do a great job. So it was a, basically relearning and reteaching myself on how I can function when I have some of these residual, you know, symptoms going on. So it was, again, practicing some of the short term. What are those things you can do? Writing things down, keeping notes, keeping lists. You were forgetful. You were struggling with your memory. Yes. Mm -hmm. And just attention. Did you find yourself also continuing to minimize the Mm -hmm. symptoms that you were experiencing? Were you transparent about what you were experiencing with people? Were you? Yes and no. Yes and no. Okay. So what what wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think for the most part, like people knew I'd been in Iraq. They knew I was, you know, coping with some, you know, residual injuries, was, was dealing with just a lot of different, you know, different more pain problems than anything else. But I think what I really did and what actually was probably some of my biggest downfall was just isolating myself. You know, I didn't want to lash out. I didn't want to um, just be around too many people. I already was doing that at work. So like in my personal life, it was really not, 
putting myself in situations where I had to explain what was going on or explain why I was acting different. It was just, it became very lonely, to be honest. And, and nobody really knew what I was going through and nobody really quite understood why I was feeling the way I was. Um, and I think for me, that was probably one of the hardest parts of my entire journey. How did that impact your relationship with your husband and more broadly with with your family? Because we're not only talking about the professional impact as a driver, but we're also talking about how do you now function as a wife and mother? And how does that show up? Mm -hmm. How do these symptoms show up? And and how do you just handle all of that? So, you know, going into the next season in 2019, you know, it was one of those things where I had thought I was better. I had thought I had been doing all these things, you know, some of the residual with the neck, I said, that's just going to be there. It's going to be something that I'm not going to necessarily have go away right now, but over time, I'm sure it will be fine. So I just kept, again, with my personality, I really, really struggle with the fact that I don't want to slow down. I don't want to um, not do the things I love. I, it was in my mind, it was still a big part of who I was as a person. You were going to will yourself into healthiness. You were, you know, you were going to white knuckle yes. it. I was willing myself. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. No, I know all about yeah. that. You were like, yeah. by golly, my brain is going to get better no matter it what. Is, it is yeah. fine. I know. Yeah. So it was one of those things where I got into, you know, some practice laps and we're, was doing that. Um, and then there was a few, you know, the very first opening race, this is when I kind of was when I probably opened up a little bit um, where the people Mm. that know me best were like, what is going on? Because we had the first opening race and it was going to be a really rough track. Like you could see it at the practice race. It was not great. So I kind of just said, you know what? We've had too many wrecks lately. Like in the last year, I think we should just take this weekend off and regroup. Um, In my mind, it was like my vision. I am not, I'm not a hundred percent. And I don't want to put myself. But you didn't say that. Track is not good. Yeah. Right. You didn't so, say anything about your vision. You're saying, oh, the track is not good. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. Okay. And right away, like, it was like people, that's never been you to back down from something like that. So it was already raising some red flags with people around me on the team. My dad and Ryan, you know, why are you not wanting to race? So the next weekend came around. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get in it. Like, it will be fine. Mm-hmm. So went out and raced. So I raced a handful of times in 2019 um, and didn't really have a great great year wasn't bad but what happened in the car what happened um it was just i always my vision you know my my depth perception was probably the biggest issue you know i'd be thinking i was right up against you know the wall running the line i wanted to run running the fast line doing all those things when in reality i was a foot and a half or two feet off when that's not where that's not where i thought i was so it would be those arguments. And I started getting frustrated saying, no, you guys aren't in the car. I know where I was racing at. And it wasn't until I started putting cameras on me where I could see it. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. Oh, I want to spend some time on that. Okay. So you have the car wreck, the second car wreck. Mm -hmm. You are um, undergoing physical therapy. You are undergoing um, the occipital um, shots, the nerve blockers, Mm -hmm. which is giving you some relief for about two months at a time. And, but but your mind is very much next race season, 2019, I'm going to be back in the car. So you're doing everything you can to make sure you, you're back in the car. Mm-hmm. So now the first race comes up. It's spring of 2019. You know internally that you're having some vision issues. But you tell the team, we're not going to race this weekend because I don't like the way the track looks. Mm-hmm. And your husband and father are saying, that's not like you, Anna. 
because you are unafraid of any track. So why, you know, why does this track bother you in previous tracks? So that means that when your husband, where your husband and father are concerned, you weren't telling them about the vision issues that you were having. Is that right? Yeah, I would share with Ryan at the time, um, you know, something just doesn't seem 100% right. I seem like I'm a little bit off, like on my vision. Like if you're saying I'm here and I'm really not even close to that, that was kind of where it started. Um, and he started to just pick up on some of these small things that she is still fighting a lot more than what she's been leading on. So mm. I told my dad saying, I, I'm not feeling 100%. I don't want to get in the car. Ryan's going to drive it tomorrow. So he uh, got in and he actually raced out the rest of 2019. But during that time when he was taking over, that was where I had probably my biggest mental health breakdown and just emotional uh, destruction is what I really call it because I, I hurt everybody around me. I was not myself. I had so much uncontrollable feelings and emotions and all sorts of things that I finally knew that's when I really did need to get help. And that's when I decided to go to Mayo and get a, get a referral to see their neurology team. You said mental health destruction. Yeah. How did that show up for you, Anna? Um, I actually got pretty suicidal. Um, sorry. It's okay. I haven't really actually shared this with a lot of people, so sorry about that. <laughs> um, There's no need to apologize. <laughs> Anyways, um, it was just a very dark time for me. Like it was very, very, um, very hard to not be able to control who you are. And I always kind of saw myself as somebody who was more of a beacon of light and wanted to be there for people and wanted to show up for people and wanted to um not be the Anna Anna so that I we're losing the signal are you there Anna 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 oh sorry about that you cut out no I'm so sorry we yep. we lo we lost the signal oh I just I, I need to tell you how grateful I am. I'm so grateful to you right now because no one wants to talk about this, right? It's hard, and it's it's so yeah. important that we talk about this. Um, but I'm sorry. We lost yeah. the signal as you were talking about it. Of course we did. <laughs> of course we did. We lost the signal. Um, I, I just want to go back, if you can, for just a moment. Yeah. You talked about being suicidal. Mm -hmm. And if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to talk about it again. Yeah. If you can just explain to me what happened in the, in those moments. Yeah, there um there was just times where I would just be sitting in a room, you know, alone and just completely isolated because I didn't want to be around me. I didn't want to hurt the people around me that I loved. I didn't want to be a burden to people. I didn't want to not be able to control who I was. And this just has not been ever my personality to not to reach out to people to need help. I'm the one that has always been the helper and the one that always has been um, kind of a beacon of light for people. So when I felt like I was going to be letting them down, 
it really played a toll on me. And, you know, there was a time where I was, I honestly, I got locked out of my phone. I couldn't remember my passcode, a passcode that I had used a thousands, millions of times, locked me out of my phone completely. And I ended up having to wipe it all out and get a new phone. And for me, those were some of the lowest moments. You know, I, I didn't want, I didn't want it to be something that I was never going to be able to recover from. I didn't want to be known as somebody who was disabled. I didn't want to be, again, just a problem for the people around me. I, and so it was just a very, very dark time. Um, and it was something that I just wasn't used to being. How did you know and who helped you um, realize that you, you needed help, professional help? Um, yeah, I think for them, for me, it was, um, Ryan was probably my biggest advocate. He was the person that I, Ryan, my husband was my biggest advocate, um, to saying you can't continue living this way. Um, you need to tell people. So we actually, um, we actually drove to my parents' house, um, and I explained everything that I had been going through. I explained, um, how I had been lashing out, how angry I had been, how many times I was just irrational, uncontrollable in so many different ways, and just finally broke down and just shared what I was dealing with and that I really needed help. And so outside of, you know, my parents were were big on that. Um, they They felt bad for not understanding, for not realizing what was going on. Um, but then I would say my aunt, Judy, who is big in NASCAR, she's worked with, you know, a lot of the, the best in that sport, um, particularly Dale Jr., who, if you've read any of his books or understand what he's been through yeah. concussion-wise. Yeah. Um, he's talked about it as well, yeah. She was actually my biggest advocate on getting into Mayo and actually getting seen by the specialist that I needed to see. So you get into Mayo. Um, who do you see and what happens after? What happens next? Are you hopeful about yeah. what's going to happen or, or what could potentially happen? Yeah, I think I was hopeful um, at that point in time because I had talked to a few different people that had gone there. There's just a lot of um, positive stories that have came from people who have actually gone there and seen the actually comprehensive, you know, brain injury protocol program. Um, so I had seen a doctor there that had been well known, especially on the sports side of things with injuries. And it was actually funny when we got into the room and we started talking about racing, he was like, well, I actually previously raced. So it was like right away, oh, wow. there was that connection. And it just was one of those things where you knew I was in the right place from there, you know, doing the assessments. Um, a lot of memory recall, a lot of just where are the injuries stemming from, where are some of these symptoms stemming from, you know, how do we manage the intracranial pressure? Because realizing then right there that a lot of that had not been even addressed. And that was a lot of why I was experiencing the, just the emotional part of the injury. Um, when that elevates a lot of times, many people can't control some of the things that I was going through. So it was reassuring and encouraging for me to be able to know that it wasn't all in my head that there was something going on, whether it was completely physical on the outside, you can't see it all, but they were able to uncover a lot more on the inside with different um, therapies with us. Did you meet with a neuropsychologist? Yep, so I met yeah. with a neuropsychologist. Yep, 
um, I actually met with a good, good chunk of different um, therapists. Well, there was a, we did a neuropsychologist. I also met with physical therapists, occipital or occupational, occupational therapists. Therapist, yeah. Yep. Same here. Yeah. So, and they did, um, you know, biofeedback. Mm -hmm. I did, you know, neuropsychology. I did all of that. And how long were you being treated by the, by the providers at the Mayo Clinic? For about six to eight months. You know, when I, I had been seeing them, COVID happened, obviously everybody knows how 2020 went. So yeah. it kind of moved to more of a tele, more on the phone um, via Skype. So that was a little yeah. bit differently, different um, to be treated that way. But at the same time, um, it was also good. I had kind of gauged and I had a better understanding. And that was where I found Pink and started finding more resources of people that, you know, I could talk Pink to. Pink concussions. Yeah. Yeah, Pink Concussions, the advocacy group that raises awareness about brain injury, particularly among women. Mm -hmm. um, that's how I discovered you was through uh, Pink Concussions. Yeah. And, and how important is community? My goodness. I mean, that's the reason why we're here. Mm -hmm. um, community is, is, is huge. Um, at what point, because I know you got back in the race car and we're going to talk about that. Um, at what point do you start thinking, I want to get back on the track again? Yeah, so it was kind of one of those uh, things that was always lingering on what we were going to do if I was going to get back in. And even in 2020, um, the world kind of stopped, but the world of dirt racing really did not. Uh, a lot of people still kept doing it, and we still had races going on. So so it's 2020, um, and at this point, you have been doing... You've been you've been doing very aggressive um, brain injury uh, recovery treatment for about six to eight months, mm -hmm. um, and you're feeling confident. Is that right about your ability to get back into the car, or are you just feeling confident that you're at least in a better mental health state? Confident, I'm in a better mental health state. Confident, you know that I'm on the right path moving forward. Um, even in the last conversation, right before, you know, um, the season was supposed to start, talking with the neurologist you know, the, the conversation was never, if you really need to be in it, in the race car, if this was your profession, we would have a, you know, a probably a larger conversation about it. But given that, you know, you aren't, this isn't what you're doing for your career. This isn't what you're doing right now. Anyways, what you're doing for anything outside of just additional, not, I don't really want to call it a hobby, but additional passion, additional. Are, are you saying that their approach likely would have been different if you said, I want to get back in the car? Yeah, no. So they were saying pretty much that they they didn't think I was ready to get back in a car. Or they didn't think I should push it. If there was going to be something where there was money, you know, whether it was, again, my salary or things that was paying the bills, we could have a greater conversation about it, but they would not recommend it. So it kind of put that to bed for the time being. Um, actually was pregnant or shortly after that got pregnant with our daughter. Um, and it was a sign. It was a sign. And I'm, I'm pretty strong in my faith. And I think that's a big reason why I got through what I got through. And given that it was a sign for me, it was a God thing. You know, I'm not ready to get in it. It is not my time yet. That time will come when it's ready to come. Did you find during your pregnancy um, any of the symptoms diminish or minimize? It was actually pretty crazy. Yes, it it was an incredible Um so that's why it was almost kind of by shock that when things started coming back after she was born. So she was born in January of 2021. Um, up until that time, kind of during the time I was pregnant, it was almost like I really 
was back to normal. Um, again, being pregnant, you cannot be on any sort of medications that you would potentially have been on before. So again, I was like, well, things are good. I'm not on medication. I'm not on all these things. And I must be better, you know, all this time, this must've been the reason, you know, that it happened. So it was probably four, four months or so, maybe five months, um, where it started to slowly come back a little bit. It wasn't, I wouldn't say I was back to where I was. That took probably almost upwards of, you know, eight months postpartum before I started really being like, this is weird. Like, you know, I didn't have any injuries again. I haven't done anything differently. All of a sudden, started feeling them again. It wasn't until later I found out that it's actually very normal for women who are pregnant to um, not, basically the act of growing a human within your body trumps a lot of different hormones within your body. Yeah, our bodies, yeah, mm-hmm. our bodies uh, heal yeah. uh, to support uh, to support the baby. I mean, I certainly experienced the same thing with our son mm-hmm. um, when when I was, and, and the same thing too, all medications that I was on, you know, you immediately have to come off of it once they find out that you're pregnant. And I was, I was actually kind of in shock because I was thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, the migraines have gone away, yes. you know, all of, you know, um, all just a number of different issues just vanished. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like you said, within months after delivery, they started to uh, come 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 back again. But I'm also wondering, though, because I know and just in my own experience with with my son, I mean, I, I was still um, and continue sometimes to experience uh, short term memory loss. And like you, just like you said, in terms of having a robust toolkit, uh, to, to help with those sorts of things. Um, I did find that that uh, was magnified a little bit in the months following delivery. And I remember thinking, how much of this is mommy brain? You know, I'm, I'm not sleeping because I'm nursing. Or, or how much of this is um, post-concussive, mm-hmm. right? I, you know, I, I didn't know. Um, what was your experience like um, post, post-delivery? Yeah, mine was, mine was pretty similar like that too. Um, you know, some of that was, you just equated to the mommy brain, like you said, but it was like- yeah. I'm really fatigued very early, you know, yeah. and again, a lot of that you're, you have a newborn, you're caring with two others that are on the go all the time. It yeah. was, well, it, it had to be just because of that, but probably in reality, right. there could have been some that was that post-concussive uh, syndrome kind of coming back through with symptoms. Yeah. And I, I think it was very similar to what you experienced that it was a forgetfulness and then just the fatigue that was just seemingly overwhelming. overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like more than what anyone ever mentioned on the mommy blog. Exactly. When do you get serious about saying, I want to get back on the track. I want to get back into a a race car. Yeah, so um, some of what my my husband, we met with sprint car racing, but he also had a really good friend, Shane. And Shane had been doing a lot of champ car racing, which is basically a form of road racing, endurance road racing. With What's it called again? Champ car? Champ car. Yeah. Okay. So what does that look so like? So there's street cars that are basically, yeah, street cars that are converted into, um, you know, race cars with roll cages. Oh, okay. A lot of different changes that end up going into that. But you basically build a car into a race car, which is pretty crazy. Um, some of the different technology and the things that they do are, it always fascinated me. Um, you know, being an outsider watching, it's a lot different than actually being on the team. Mm -hmm. So Ryan had said, well, maybe this is the path that we should go. Maybe this is a little bit less risk. This is something that, you know, you might be really interested in doing, but it's something we could do together that you won't 
you'll still get that racing taste, but you won't have the risks that sprint cars, you know, the violent flips and the accidents that sprint car racing has. So I kind of always had that a little bit in my back of my mind, but I'm like, it just isn't the same. Like this cannot be as fun as sprint car racing. And that's where my, that's where my roots are. So yeah. that's where my passion has always been. So it was hard for me to kind of really wrap my brain around doing anything but that. Um, it wasn't until really, you know, in the last year, year and a half, we had bought an E30, which is a BMW E30, to convert it into a car. I mean, it was already a, a race car, but get it back up to running. And just time, you know, kids, three race, four race cars, well, go two go-karts and then a race car. Oh, so the littles are in it. Yeah. The littles, <laughs> the next generation, they're, they're already starting. The next generation's in it, you know. So that's kind of really where I started thinking maybe my path was never to be a driver. It was to one, go down the path of just concussion awareness and being an advocate mm -hmm. on that side, especially what I went through on the mental health side that again, like not a lot of people have really known, but then also, you know, my path as a race mom and then a race wife. I had thought maybe that was really where I should be going. So I kind of put it to bed when we didn't really do anything with the E30 and ended up selling it and was just, you know, there to support my family. Um, and then to support people that I know that have been through some concussing concussions themselves. And I understand that your mom suffered a, a brain injury, um, slipping on a patch of ice. Uh, a good family friend uh, suffered a very significant brain injury as well just a, a few, was it a few weeks or a few months prior to you deciding that you wanted to go ahead and do this race? Yeah, it was actually um, kind of around the same time that I was thinking about doing this race. Um, I had been talking about it with a friend at the go-kart track, um, his kids race along with our boys. So we had gotten to know each other, um, you know, had been talking about this for quite some time, putting together a team with his two kids and then um himself and me being on the team but it was one of those things where you know if it if it happens great if it doesn't great um and he kind of kept pushing me which is it's funny now because had he not kept pushing me I probably would have never gotten in a car um without him so that was pretty pretty crazy that it happened around the same time but yes our dear friend did get in a motorcycle accident and sustained some pretty serious injuries and is actually on the road to recovery right now and is doing incredible, um, given that it was not that long ago. But it was for sure a factor in my even thoughts of how am I going to race in a month knowing this had just happened. Right, right. And what did it feel like getting in the car? I, I read that you have referred to uh, being in the car on the racetrack is your place of solace. It's your happy place. What did that feel like when you finally returned? Yeah, I think the just the feelings leading up into it and just what you're building up in your, you know, in your mind about what it's going to be like to be back in a car, the excitement, the nerves, just all the unknowns. Um, but once you're in the car and, you know, after you've taken, you know, that first couple laps and you're getting a feel for it, it was just like, this is, this is where I belong. And I, I finally felt that peace that I had not felt in quite some time by being back in a place that, you know, being at speed, racing, competing, all those things that just really like lit my fire. 
was finally kind of there again. Um, and to be able to know that I could do it and I was, you know, strong enough to do it and that my injuries weren't going to prevent me from being as good as I thought I should be. Were there any jitters as you suited up when you put the helmet on? Was there anything? I mean, I'm thinking that you there's probably a million thoughts going through your head at this time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So with endurance races, you have a seven hour, then an eight hour race. So Saturday, Sundays. Um, and I just remember thinking Saturday, it was nervous. But after Friday, things had been going pretty good. I, I felt pretty confident with what the car was doing and where I was at. Um, Saturday, we had a you know, I had a little bit of difficulty adjusting to some of the conditions and we found, you know, maybe some issues were with the car, but I had a, a spin on a blind corner and cars are just flying by me as I'm trying to get the car back started. And it was just one of those things of like, what am I doing? Why am I in this mm. car right now? This was a mistake. And so you think all those things, but you were second guessing <laughs> yourself. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, but pushing through it and you know, getting through that time and getting back out there, going back, you know, at speeds and trying, um, I think really helped just boost my confidence that I can overcome it. And it wasn't until so Sunday, right after this, you know, Saturday being a little bit rough, it was one of those things where I'm like, I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to fail. I don't want to have, you know, problems. I don't want to do something that jeopardizes myself, my family, things like that. But again, <laughs> so you feel all those things, but um, getting back in the car really Sunday was probably when I felt that just unbelievable feeling of, you know, when I'm passing cars, I'm turning fast times, I'm competing again. There's just nothing like it. I, I just felt again, almost like I was home. How much of your identity felt like it had finally been returned to you because of that race? You know, I think you, you realize even when going through what I went through that your identity isn't tied to necessarily one thing in particular and that there are so much, there is so much more to life than just a sport or just your career or just your hobbies. But there's something to be said about the passions that light you light your fire, light your soul on fire. And for me, that is what I felt. Um, and I just felt that there is a place for me whether it's doing something like this in the future, continuing to do it, but that racing is something that I don't want to lose. And it's something that the drive to compete is something that I don't, that that does make me feel like that is part of my identity. Did you find any of those vision issues surface again, like they did uh, in 2018? Not from, no, really not from like a vision standpoint, you know, the biggest, that I realized was just some of the ways I was tensing up caused some of the issues within my neck to, to, you know, radiate some pain or numbness down my arm. But I realized a lot of that I could do by calming. And, and some of my therapy was just simply the breathing, breathing from, you know, your body, not just your chest and not just tightening up some of those muscles and the way I was pulling the steering wheel, things like that. Like you just take time to pause and slow down. And for me with the injury itself, I am, I tend to fly, you know, hundred miles an hour all the time with everything I'm doing. It's just one, it's some of who I am, some of it's my job, but that also was a way of, I think even almost like a therapeutic way for me in the car to be thinking about those things and not just be so, you know, tense when I'm in there. So that was really the only thing I had that a little residual, but that wasn't anything that I would say 
would maybe have not happened had I not had the injury just because of the way I was, you know, tensing up at the time. So, which was incredible for me to not have those vision issues. I was very, probably my biggest concern was that um, in there as well as, you know, migraines or things like that, that would come up. So how did you do? How did you finish in the race? So we actually finished third in our class. Um, we were running second in our class and overall um, and had a small motor issue that we actually found and resolved rather quickly. But endurance racing is a lot about sustaining and finishing the race. So when we got back out there, um, we kind of climbed our way back up and actually finished you know, third in the class, which was really, really incredible that it was my first road race ever, let alone endurance race. It was just a fun and surreal part or uh it was fun and surreal to be a part of. Do you think you will continue to do this type of racing, or do you think that you will um, maybe try for sprint car again? I think for now, this is probably filling my bucket enough. I really did enjoy it. I enjoyed the team we were with. Um, they're great people. And just the other people that are even in there that are competing the other teams, they're awesome people in general. So a lot of them are just like us, just trying to, you know, get their fix in from racing, but also competing. So I, I do see myself for a while, at least here, um, doing endurance racing and just seeing where that goes. I'm not saying that sprint car racing may not be in my future again. Um, only time will really tell. You talked about earlier about um, just how much it meant to you as a woman in this you know, very heavily male-dominated sport to be an inspiration to other women and, and young girls. And I know you, you have a daughter of your own, uh, a two-year-old. Uh, tell me what it was like to have the, the little girls see you jumping out of this uh, champ car. Yeah, it was always funny because she's watched videos of me but never seen me. So when I told her that, you know, because I did race against my husband, he was on a different team. So we were both racing, uh, not on the track at the same time, but competing against each other nonetheless. When I actually told her I was racing, she said, Mom, you can't race. Mommy not racing. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I am. But when she, when she saw me and saw me in the suit, you know, it was just her eyes lit up. And it was something that I that I really enjoy just having her be a part of and seeing me actually back in a car. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Anna Kuba Bowers. Oh, this has just been such a delight. And I just cannot say thank you enough for, for joining me and uh, just talking to me about your journey. And clearly your journey is still unfolding. I, you know, we can't wait to see what you'll be racing uh, when and, and, and where you'll be racing uh, next time. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute joy talking with you and just getting to know you, um, you know, over the last year or two. I know it's been, I know we've been wanting to do this for a while, so I'm glad we yeah, finally we able been. to make this happen. We yeah, this has been great. Mm -hmm. For more information about pink concussions and how you can get connected, you can find it in the show notes.